Hey everyone, this is Cobain. Today we're going to be continuing our series on biblical hermeneutics, specifically with respect to Mark 16 and Genesis 29. Before we get into that, I just want to mention my Patreon. If you enjoy these videos and you get something out of it, and if you are in a financially sound situation, please consider becoming a patron. Uh, in addition to select premium content, the third tier, which is $20 per month, on Patreon and 25 for YouTube members because YouTube takes a higher cut. Uh, the third tier guarantees at least one hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion over the phone or Zoom or equivalent per month. You can take advantage of that every month if you want to, and you can talk about whatever you'd like to ask. Um, no, really no limits. Um, so uh, if that's something you're interested in, please take that under consideration and keep in mind that it really does help me to continue to produce this content. Uh, it really is actually essential for continuing to produce the content that I have a stable and uh, a sound base of patrons. So I don't like mentioning the Patreon. I actually really don't, <laughs> don't at all. Um, but uh, for the time being, uh, it's important that I begin the videos this way. Um, and also, uh, right now I have ads on YouTube. Uh, I really want to get rid of those. Uh, I've begun to reduce them in uh, some of my more popular and important videos, uh, but I would love to get rid of them entirely. Uh, so if you even contribute something like a dollar a month, that's extraordinarily helpful because of the size of the audience and the proportion who become patrons. So uh, thanks for hearing the pitch and enjoy the discussion. So if the well over which there is a stone which is rolled away and which is rolled away to give water to the sheep corresponds to the tomb of Christ, does that illumine other biblical symbols? Well, yes, it does. We've noted that the imagery of marriage at a spring often pertains to the extension of life outward further and further so that new nations marry into the family. Jesus has the discussion not with someone from his own nation, but from uh, the Samaritans. And there is a Samaritan Pentecost before there is a Gentile Pentecost, Acts 8 and then Acts 10 in turn. Uh, such that Samaria is kind of an intermediate between Israel and the nations. Uh, so, and of course, ex, uh, in Exodus chapter 2, Moses marries the daughter of Jethro, and he acts as protective bridegroom in relation to Jethro's seven, seven daughters, and the imagery of seven women is used uh, to signify the converted nations in Isaiah, and arguably that imagery is used in the Gospels when Jesus invokes the seven remaining barrels in the feeding of the 4,000 in contrast to the 12, which obviously corresponds to the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. So take a look at what we have in the Gospel of John. Now, if the well corresponds to the tomb of Christ, then what that means is that the tomb of Christ is a source of water in one way or another. And in light of what we've been saying, that actually makes a great deal of sense. The water which is promised to the Samaritan woman is echoed later at another event, which is narrated in the context of another sixth hour, uh, in the context of another woman, who in fact is uh, one of the four women addressed as woman in the Gospel of John and described using a variety of Eve imagery and echoes. Uh, 
uh, because at the cross, Jesus's side is broken open and blood and water flows out. And as we've mentioned before, that is an echo of, among other things, Genesis 2, where Eve is taken from the side of Adam. Jesus's behold your mother is an echo of an earlier text in John where Pilate says, behold the man, i.e. the man. Uh, not just this person I have here before you, but the deeper meaning of this is the true and glorious human being standing before you. Well, in the Gospel of John, we have a major theme being the dwelling of God with mankind in the person of Jesus, specifically elucidated in the imagery of the tabernacle. And that imagery is elucidated in order, beginning outwards and moving as we go through the Gospel inwards. This is one of several parallel structures that is developed in the Gospel of John, uh, John is a very carefully crafted work that develops many themes simultaneously, but not only simultaneously, but it layers the themes on top of each other such that the various structures interplay with each other in very interesting ways that, uh, so that the whole tells us more than the addition of the various parts. Well, if we begin in John chapter 1, the theme begins with John the Baptist calling attention to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is offered on the altar. This is what happens at the courtyard. The Most of the action takes place outside of the building proper, the tabernacle proper, and then later the stone temple. Uh, that is actually a feature we see in architectural temples from around the world. You see it in Mesoamerica as well. You see the altar is actually outside uh, or the, the, the sacrificial work was to be done outside of the architectural holy mountain. That's an, uh, it's a completely um, topic for another video. Uh, but as you work through the gospel, you will find that uh, the evangelist shows us various words and deeds of Jesus that correspond with our literary journey into the heart of the tabernacle. So we have, as we approach the table of face bread or table of showbread, the bread of life discourse. We have the feeding of the 5,000 in that context. We hear the words, I am the light of the world, because at this point in our literary tour of the tabernacle, we are at the menorah, Jesus being the fulfillment of that menorah. And all of this comes to its fulfillment in John chapter 20, where we have the tomb of Jesus, which is located in a garden. Remember, the tabernacle, the temple is just suffused with garden imagery. In John chapter 20, we are told that in the tomb, there were two angels on either side of Jesus's burial stone. And that's a very important point because, as you should know, there were two cherubim on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. And we are being told simultaneously that Jesus is the great high priest, but also that Jesus is the God of Israel, the angel of the Lord, whom the high priest both represents and communes with. So you see in Zechariah, in the visions of Zechariah, uh, Joshua the high priest stands with a host of men, and we hear God referring to you and the men who stand before you are a sign of other things. And the angel of the Lord is the preeminent head of the heaven, or preeminent member of the heavenly hosts here in the book of Zechariah. He's called another angel, a phrase which is picked up in the apocalypse to refer to Jesus as the angel of the Lord. Uh, 
That's why he's referred to as an angel, but described with theophanic attributes taken from the various prophetic theophanies. Uh, you don't have to believe me uh, for now for the purposes of this video, uh, but it is indeed there in the book of Revelation, um, as, as could be and probably will be discussed in another uh, video. Well, in the next chapter of John's Gospel, we have the story of the catch of the 153 fish. We are told that they caught 153 fish, and we are told that the net did not tear. This is another interesting little detail which didn't need to be given to us, but it is given to us, leading us to ask what exactly, if any, is its significance. Now, I take as a... Uh, just a, a hermeneutical principle that all details have significance of some sort, but you don't need to agree with me to see the significance and the details that I suggest to you. I just use that as a principle to guide the questions that I ask, not the answers that I get. Now, the interesting thing is that this word for tear is used one other time in John's Gospel. Uh, the word is used 11 times in total in the New Testament, and when a word is used relatively rarely, it leads us to at least ask, is there a relationship between the two times that it is used? And if there is an hypothetical relationship, can we make sense of that in light of the already known theology of the text as a whole? Well, indeed, there is. Of course, the church is the body of Christ, is the extension of Christ's life into the world. That has been a major theme of the New Testament, but especially of the Gospel of John, where Jesus, who dwells in the side of the Father, makes his own presence available to the church through the Spirit. So the Father and the Son make their home in the church by the Spirit, and they dwell in his people. So if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will dwell in you and you and me. Uh, my life will be in you and so on and so forth. Well, in John chapter 19, we read that the soldiers who played lots for Jesus' garment specifically decided not to tear his garment. Now, one of the major themes in the Gospel of John is the theme of Jesus as high priest. That appears in a number of places throughout the text. The most well-known is in John 17, where Jesus prays the famous high priestly prayer, referring to implicitly and to varying degrees explicitly to the high priestly duties and offering up his entire life and existence to the Father as a human being so that we might offer up our life in him so that Jesus prays that we will be one in him as the Father and the Son are one so that all might see the glory of God. Well, the garment of the high priest signifies the body of Israel. In various places in the Bible, uh, we see that how this works out. We see, for example, that the high priest is said to bear the 12 sons of Israel in his body. The high priest wears a breastplate which has 12 stones signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. A mixed fabric is prohibited to most Israelites, not because it's unclean, but because it is holy. The integration of distinct things in a harmonious unity elevates a thing in relation to God. It is consecrated, and thus it becomes dangerous to possess in an unconsecrated state. So if you plant two kinds of seed, you don't actually destroy that which you have planted. You actually owe it all to the tabernacle, which means it is of elevated holiness, not uncleanness. Those are two very different things. Certain laws are similar between the two, but those similarities are superficial. They are actually um, given for opposite theological reasons. Now, the importance of this point here is that we, as the body of Christ as 
those who are joined to the life of Christ, who are worn by Christ, as it were. The prophets uh, in various places, uh, for example, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah has a belt which he puts on, and the prophets are images of God. We see that with Moses, who shines with the divine glory. We see this with Ezekiel, where there's a, the God of Israel is described as one who exists in the likeness of a man, and then Ezekiel is filmed with the very spirit which Mo. Uh, which moves the chariot of God, and Ezekiel is then called in that context the Son of Man, and Ezekiel flies from place to place as the chariot of God flies from place to place. So when Jeremiah wears this belt, and that which is done to the belt signifies that which is about to happen to Israel, we're being given a principle about what the existence of a prophet means in general. And then most famously, Isaiah is given a coal flaming with divine glory. And when Isaiah's mouth is touched to that coal, his sin is atoned for, anticipating something which is going to happen to the whole nation. And through that, to all nations later in the Messianic age. And notably, Isaiah is incorporated into the glory of God so that God utilizes the prophet as his own instrument in making his word living and active in relation to the nation for the sake of all the world. Now, that's all relevant because the whole point is that the untorn garment of Christ, its lack of tearing, is interpreted in light of its relationship to the integrated body of Christ because the net is specifically said to be not torn now that alone would not mean very much we could say okay perhaps you know the two uh the two verses use the same word that is not something to build a whole theology on it's not something to argue a connection for just on that basis but it is not simply that they use the same word, but that there are convergences independent of this verbal convergence, and these various other convergences underscore and develop the very same theme. So what I'm trying to do is to show how we can take one little thread in any biblical book and follow it through in any direction, backwards and forwards and all around, to uh, reveal the unity of God's word in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is it that is actually caught in the net? Well, it's 153 fish. Well, what does that symbolize? Now, this is actually not that hard to understand because Jesus in the other gospels tells the apostles that they will be fishers of men. So the fish that are caught signify the uh, people who are evangelized in their mission. In other words, the people of the church. This is confirmed by the fact that Jesus will then place these fish on a fire, a charcoal fire, we are told, and he will serve it to the disciples with bread, and he will say, take and eat. This specific phrase is characteristic of the Eucharistic institution. Now, John does not narrate the Eucharistic institution. He knows we already have it. He's writing to supplement the Synoptic Gospels, and specifically, I would argue, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is based on the testimony of Peter, and John's big theme, one of them at least, is the testimony of two or three witnesses. These two witnesses in the Gospel of John are Peter and the beloved disciple, which is why they're always uh, or consistently linked together. And John is writing so that we can link it together with Mark and get a whole chronology of the life of our Lord Jesus. That's an insight I think Richard Balcom has argued for and developed um, uh, very well. It's been summarized by, by Jimmy Aiken. If you just Google Jimmy Aiken, John, supplement Mark, you'll find, find something along those lines. Uh, anyway, so we know that this... Um, uh, oh, but... So he doesn't narrate the Eucharist to us, but what he does do is he gives us seven images of the Eucharist. He also gives us seven images of baptism. I'm not going to go through all seven right now, 
Uh, I'll only say that um, I didn't decide in advance that there were supposed to be seven. I just worked through the text and uh, identified uh, and counted up the various images that we have. Uh, and it really did just come out to seven uh, for each. So whether or not you agree with the seven figure, this one seems very um, neatly to be understood in a Eucharistic context, especially given that there is explicitly bread identified as present, especially given that it seems to be linked with the feeding of the 5,000, especially given that in the Synoptic Gospels, the feedings of the five and 4,000 uh, are described in terms that will later be echoed very strongly at the Last Supper in the context of the Eucharist. Now, what is the Eucharist all about? Well, it's the body of Christ, but it's the body of Christ because it affects a unity in the church because the church is joined to that one body of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians. We are, uh, we are one body because we partake of that one bread, which is the communion of the one body and blood of Christ. That Eucharist is the communion which creates a integration and a oneness in the people of the church so what about that uh why or let's let's first ask why fish well in the bible the land sea distinction probably one of its most um uh, uh, uh primary reference is symbolically is the distinction between israel and the nations jew and gentile so we see in the book of daniel when God is stirring up Gentile empires, he stirs up the sea. Daniel has seven instances of looking. For example, Daniel will say, and I looked. So Daniel looks at distinct things seven times. You work those out. You match them to the seven days of creation. It quite straightforwardly uh, corresponds theologically and verbally to the seven creation days or six creation days and the seventh sabbatical day. The son of man is the son of Adam. And what is the son of Adam doing? He is receiving dominion and authority as God created man to have in the beginning. And the text of Daniel 7 begins with a primordial sea. It begins with winds blowing over the face of the waters, corresponding to the spirit blowing over the primordial waters in Genesis 1-2. Uh, the connections are are, are are quite numerous there in Daniel. But the point I want you to remember today is simply that Daniel 7 links the sea to the Gentile world. It's also something you see in the book of Jonah. Jonah goes over the sea to Assyria. Now, Jonah actually could have geographically gone by land. Now, why is it that God ordains that he has to go there by sea? One of the reasons is that it reveals and underscores the symbolic reality of the land-sea distinction in relation to Israel and the nation. Jonah means dove. And the dove is a sign of the Holy Spirit. That is, I don't think, disputed by anybody. But in, in uh, the text of Jonah, the immediate or the closest referent in the minds of the audience most likely would be the dove of the flood. So we have in the flood, we have a wind corresponding to the same word, the wind blowing over the surface of the waters. And that wind begins to push back the waters of the flood and the sign that the flood is ultimately receding is when the dove brings an olive branch. And uh, what do you know? Olive branch, well, olive oil produces that which we use to light the menorah. It is liquid light, another sign of the Holy Spirit. So the fact that there is a dove who goes out on the sea and then a great wind blows on the sea and he ultimately comes to Assyria and bears witness to this Gentile kingdom so that there will be 
Gentile God-fearers who are prepared to receive the exiled uh, Israelites from the northern kingdom when they are when they are sent to Assyria. That's something God does in, with Daniel as well. God sends Daniel. Daniel converts uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. We see that in Daniel chapter 4. He prepares the kingdom of Babylon so that the exile is cushioned to a degree, so that their exile in Babylon is in service to the revelation of the God of heaven and earth uh, to all the nations. So we know that the fish, if we just look symbolically, are Gentiles, and there are a million different ways one could continue to argue that point, uh, but, and that corresponds quite naturally with the fact that we're talking about the body of Christ. They're integrated into this one net, which corresponds to the one garment, which is worn by Christ. The whole mission of the church is the healing of the nations, the gathering of the nations into Christ's family, and thus the unification of mankind. It's what God wanted to do from the beginning, to create one image, which is the human family, to unite all mankind around the one name of the Lord, while preserving a distinction and diversity of language, of nations, so Genesis 11, one, uh, the people of Babylon have a tower and a city. It's a temple and a city. They have a cult and a culture, a religion and a society. And they have a, uh, and what God does is he splits both of them up. Ultimately, he wants to unify the God whom nations worship, that is, around Jesus Christ, the name of the Lord, but nevertheless preserve the rich splendor of the manifold um, uh, uh, breadth of the nations and their various tongues. So Zephaniah chapter 3, it tells us the lip of the nations will be made one but not the language. Because those aren't translated consistently in most English versions, uh, or at least because we really don't notice the distinction between language and lip, that's something that we generally aren't attentive to, but it's a very important theme uh, nevertheless. Uh, so we already have plenty of reason to understand what's going on here. It's about the church. It's about the Gentiles. That makes a great deal of sense. It makes a great deal of sense that this is understood in light of the body of Christ. So why 153? Well, obviously there were concretely 153 fish. And obviously, you know, John was an actual fisherman. And they had to know how many fish they caught. That's how he knew the information. But the fact remains that there's a great deal which we do not know about what was uh, what transpired that day. We don't know what the temperature was like. We don't know if it was hot or cold. We don't know uh, whether any of the disciples were irritated, whether they slept well the night before. I mean, this is the kind of information which you, you might think I'm being fishista sometimes, but um, that kind of information is sometimes provided to us in the Bible. We're told in the book of Esther that the king wasn't sleeping well. I mean, this is something which, when it is noted, it has a specific relevance in the symbolic uh, and uh, 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 literary strategy of the biblical author, who is ultimately God himself. Uh, so why 153? Uh, is there anything that we can make sense of with 153? Now, I want to make clear that any kind of symbolic interpretation that we give, um, it's got to actually hold together. Okay, so just giving an interpretation, you know, is not superior to saying, I have no idea. It's better to say, I don't know, than to give an interpretation that's dubious. Uh, but actually, 153... Uh, I think has a quite um, strong interpretation. Uh, and that is in Ezekiel chapter 47, you've got the Messianic temple. And from the Messianic temple, from that, from the center of that temple, that is the inner sanctuary, which is the Holy of Holies, same thing, different, different phrases are used in the tabernacle and the temple, but inner sanctuary equals the Holy of Holies. Um, and in the Messianic age, we are told that there is a spring which wells up in the Holy of Holies 
and it flows out. And what it does is it flows out, it reaches the Dead Sea, and it gives life to the fish. Now already in Ezekiel 47, we got this theme of the nations, because the Dead Sea actually was created by the destruction, not only of Sodom and Gomorrah, but of other two other cities, because in Genesis 9, 18 and 19, there are five cities of the plain, four of which are destroyed. Uh, and that uh, series of events creates the environment, which includes the Dead Sea. Um, obviously, this is... this this fits far better with a revised chronology than it does with conventional chronology, just given the history of the Dead Sea. But, um, you know, as an offhand statement, I will say uh, that uh, if I were to name an archaeological context for the period of the patriarchs, it would it would definitely not be the Middle Bronze Age. It would be the, the late Chalcolithic period, because from the, absol uh, from the absolute chronological information we're given, uh, we, we ought to expect if biblical chronology is true, that the patriarchal period is quite early in the history of urbanization. Okay, so this whole and actually quite complicated issue. Um, but I just want to mention that briefly because people might ask, well, wasn't the Dead Sea around before then? Um, in any case, so the, the, the issue here in Ezekiel 47 is actually in certain ways the reversal of the judgment that was rendered upon the Gentiles, or specific Gentiles in Genesis 18 to 19. There you have wicked Gentiles who are judged with fire from heaven. It is itself echoing the narrative of the flood. And here in Ezekiel 47, in the Messianic temple, water flows out from the sanctuary and it revives. It gives life to the fish of the Dead Sea. It turns what had become a desolate wilderness because of God's judgment into a paradisical sanctuary because of God's redemptive blessing, not only for Israel, but through Israel for the nations. Now, what we're told here is that they... Uh, uh, along this redeemed paradisical river, there will be fishermen in Engedi and Eneglaim. Now, one thing that's interesting here is that Engedi is uh, a location that is featured in the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 14, which is the War of Keterleomer and uh, uh, other uh, sorry uh, Near Eastern nations in this early period. Uh, this is the context where Lot is taken captive. Abraham has to go with 318 fighting men to get them back. Uh, but that, I think, is the most direct literary illusion there, that we have a conflict with the Gentiles in the same section of Scripture. We've got the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative. Uh, but what is interesting in the context of the Gospel of John is that in Gideon and Anaglaim have gematria, numerical values of 17 and 153. Now, 17 and 153 actually correspond to each other. 17, or 153, is the triangular of 17. And what a triangular number is, is when you take any number and you add together each of the um, successive integers up to the number itself. So, 17, or let's say the triangular of 5 would be 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5. And the sum of that is the triangular of 5. Well, 153 is the triangular value of uh, 17. So those two correspond to each other. 
Um, I have a video on, on numerical devices in the Bible if you're interested in, in this. This is not something that is the Bible code. This is actually a literary device that uh, authors of antiquity explicitly talk about using. So some people are very skeptical about any, any kind of thing along these lines. But the reality is that we know authors use these kind of devices because they talk about it. Um, difficulty in identifying the existence of a device is not the same thing it, as saying the device itself should be a matter of a doubt. We know they existed because we are told about them. They're quite widespread. Whether we can identify them or not, I think that uh, with varying degrees of confidence we can. Um, I think here we have a high degree of confidence for a variety of reasons. And 17 and 153, they correspond to each other there. And then the Gospel of John, 153 fish. Okay, so 153... That's what connection, but it's not just that the number is the same. It is the fact that, hey, look, it's fish in both cases. Uh, we have in Ezekiel 47, the Gematria 153, describing a location where there are fish being gathered. And those fish are those fish who have been given life. They've been given life because they are resurrected from the waters that are flowing out from the temple of God, which is a major image in the Gospel of John. Jesus speaks about this. The spring of the water of life. Jesus will give living water to his people. Water flows out from his side to give life to the world. Uh, and in uh, John 21, the 153 fish signify the redeemed and healed and unified nations. They correspond to the garment which Christ wears. They correspond thus to the body of Christ. In fact, if you want to get deep into the weeds here, 153 is the gematria of this location in Ezekiel 47. Arguably, arguably, this is something I say with a lower degree of confidence because the description of primordial geography in Genesis uh, chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 is made up out of 153 words. This name, this gives us the specific names of the four rivers which divide in the Garden of Eden and flow out to the ends of the earth. And those four rivers mark out the boundaries of the antediluvian world. And it is notable in relation to our discussion of the nations because in Genesis chapter 10, we are told that the sons of Noah divided out from their original location. And that's an interesting turn of phrase because, number one, it's not all that typical a word. It suggests the possibility of a link between, thematically speaking, between these various suns and the rivers. Uh, number two, because that link uh, makes sense in view of the actual purpose of these rivers being noted. That is, they divide up the boundaries of the nations' lands before the flood, and there is a pre-flood, post-flood relationship which is too complicated to get into now it's not the same territory but after the flood the first area to be settled is mesopotamia and the middle east a lot of territories will take on names which resemble names from the antediluvian world though i should note that there are names which resemble genesis 1 to 6 uh, uh personal names outside of the, the near east as well so this is not such an ad hoc thing there actually is uh, uh there are data which suggests the biblical story is the reality and that the other traditions are um, uh, uh, 
representations with varying degrees of distortion uh, of the biblical flood story and other stories coming from the primeval history. Uh, now, in Isaiah, we read that the nations in the Messianic age, we, the latter days, this is the era where the descendant from the line of Judah will come to rule the nations, uh, Genesis 49, Numbers 23 to 24, and so on and so forth. Um, we are told uh, specifically that they will flow to where? Mount Zion. They will flow to Mount Zion. Now, at the end of the book of Isaiah, the same dynamic is described, but in the other direction. And what do you know? It is described using the imagery of a river. Already, the imagery uh, the, of a river is being suggested by the use of the word flow, which is used more naturally for a river than it is for the movements of people. But it makes sense in light of the connection between the movements of nations that is identified in the use of the word divide in Genesis 10 and in Genesis uh, 2. Uh, and in uh, Isaiah 65, 66, a river of life flows out from Zion. Note that's the exact thing which is uh, being described in Ezekiel 47. flows out from Zion. It gives life to the nations. And then it circles back to Zion. And it carries with it the wealth of nations, which in turn glorifies the sanctuary of Israel's God. And that is all unified with the imagery of the river. And this further suggests, if not probability, then uh, strong plausibility that this also is in the background of the use of 153. And giving all of this stuff, and much more could be said in service to any one of these points, but I'm giving it to you as a kind of example or introduction or argument for following threads of biblical theology this way. Remember, we started just with a large stone in the Gospel of Mark. And I've tried, I know it's a little bit long-winded, but I've tried to be precise and explicit about how exactly we are moving from one step to the next. Because many times when a person is talking about biblical typology or theology, they'll be following for a while, and then suddenly, well, they'll lose you. How exactly did you get from A to D? And at that point, it will begin to lose plausibility, and once it loses plausibility, it becomes boring because it's just someone jabbering. No one wants to hear anybody jabbering, so I appreciate your, uh, uh, your great patience in listening to me do exactly that. Um, I mean, that's ironically, I mean, but, uh, so, I mean, that is why we're looking at this one very specific thread, and we're kind of trying to focus uh, on each step in the way that we have so far. Uh, so, 153 at the end of John's Gospel. Well, you've got the 153 fish and the untorn nets. If you look at the way that that number makes sense in the context of Ezekiel, it seems to be describing the redemption, the healing of the nations who were previously subject to judgment. The judgment, the nations which were judged, are typically summed up in the judgment of the five cities of the plain. Four out of five were destroyed. Uh, that's an image that we see used in the way that I've suggested explicitly in Isaiah chapter 19, for example. Isaiah 19, we are told that Israel, Assyria, and Egypt will together be redeemed and blessed, and that uh, four out of five cities will call on, will uh, uh, speak one lip. Remember, lip talks about the confession of the God you worship. To call on the name of the Lord is to call on the name of the Lord with your lip. And Isaiah 19 says that four out of five cities will speak the same lip. That is the lip of Canaan, the lip of those who dwell in the land of promise. 
Uh, and why mention Egypt and Assyria? Well, I think the reason that they or that Isaiah mentions Egypt and Assyria is because Egypt, this is the oppressor of the Exodus, and Assyria is the oppressor of Isaiah's generation. We Babylon hasn't yet risen to power. Remember, originally Babylon and Assyria are founded by the same guy, Nimrod, which is why they're considered in certain biblical texts to be a kind of single organism, which has a single purpose, even though political power shifts uh, here and there over the decades uh, but the four out of the five cities uh, which are redeemed um, are redeemed in this context and the message that we are supposed to be derived here is that the gospel or the redemption to use less loaded terminology if you don't if you're not convinced already that jesus is the messiah um, the redemption that is brought in the messianic age has as its beneficiary not only Israel, but also through Israel, the nations, but not only the nations, but actually the nations who are Israel's historic oppressors. In other words, if the redemption extends even to Israel and or even to Assyria and Egypt, such that God can say of Assyria and Egypt, Egypt my people, Assyria my allotted inheritance, if he can use that kind of language, which is, seems to be so intimately and exclusively bound to the nation Israel, if he can use that language of Egypt and Assyria of all people, he can use it of all nations, which is why that uh, the unification of all nations is described in terms of the seven women taking hold of the seed of Judah in Isaiah 4, Isaiah 11 following. Uh, that last of the uh, five cities is identified as the city of destruction in Isaiah 19. So why is this the case? Well, what we're being shown is that it's an inversion of what happened in Genesis 18 to 19. Genesis 18 to 19, uh, one city was spared of the five. Four of them were devoted to destruction, to use the terminology which make, uh, which describes the judgment on the Canaanites in Deuteronomy, Joshua, and elsewhere. It's about actually consecration. Um, which means divine fire comes down, which is why they light the Canaanite cities with the fire. It has priestly connotations. There's all sorts of interesting stuff to go into there. Joel McDermott has actually a book on, on, on this, which is uh, which I haven't read, um, but which you know uh, I've skimmed here and there and is uh, quite productive, I think. Um, but the symbolic purpose here is that whereas in the first era... It is a remnant of mankind who calls on the name of the Lord. In this messianic age, unfaithfulness is the exception, not the rule. Um, that is what we're supposed to take away, I think, from Isaiah chapter 19.